The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. So as you know, we as a church love to spend time, um, and particularly this time of the year, working through some psalms as a church. Um, And one thing that I dearly love about the psalms um, is that so much of the Old Testament is about storytelling and narrative, um, seeing what happened with God's people. However, when we get to the Psalms, we get to see something entirely different. We get to look into the heart and emotions of the psalmist as they bring praise, lament, and songs to God. We see the Psalms fit into different areas of the greater biblical narrative, like Michael spoke on a couple of weeks back. And then we also have Psalms like this one, 130, which we're going to open up today, which we know a lot less about. May I just briefly pray as well? Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your Son and for all that you have done for us. I pray that you may be glorified this morning, that your Holy Spirit may speak through me. Um, Let it be your words and let mine be forgotten. In your name, amen. So now Jimmy was kind enough for us to be able to choose any psalm um, to preach on, which was nice. And my desire to preach... uh, on a, my desire was to preach on a psalm that we could go through uh, at a reasonable pace, verse by verse, rather than sort of flying by. Um, as you know, this is our staple here at LCC, um, and it's, our, it's most of our diet. I personally think this style of teaching is incredibly important for us, um, as this is how we individually read God's Word each and every day in our own private Bible reading. We therefore, each and every Sunday, get to be taught by God's Word and also get taught how to work through God's Word in our own private time with God. As we walk through God's Word and look at it line by line in the greater context of the Gospel, we get to see what God has got to say and not just what we want to hear. So if I could choose any psalm, why this one? Psalm 130 is a psalm of repentance and forgiveness. It is a psalm written to help comfort and guide us as we are convicted and come face to face with our sin. Confessing our sins to God and sometimes to each other is something we are called to do numerous times in Scripture. In James 5.16, we are specifically called to confess our sins to one another. There is freedom and forgiveness that is found on the other side of confession. But it can be terribly uncomfortable coming face to face with our sin. When we are convicted of our sin, its ugliness, our rebellion against God, we can feel crushed by the weight of it. When we are convicted, our hearts can be heavy, our souls weighed down. Someone, Psalm 130 addresses this very condition and the hope that is ultimately found in God. So, when we are convicted of sin, when we feel the weight of it, there are two potential responses that we can take. We can feel the shame and feel like we must hide uh, from God like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, or we can run to God as we are called to time and time again in Scripture. We must run to Him. There is no point in hiding. He sees us and He knows us better than we even know ourselves. Therefore, my hope this morning is that as we walk through Psalm 130, you too may find comfort. For those who have previously been or are currently feeling the despair and weight of sin, I pray this psalm would help you to come to Christ in repentance and then have the freedom and joy that your sin has been dealt with in Christ once and for all. My prayer is that you might find comfort like me and countless others throughout the centuries. 
So let's get stuck in. So firstly, a little bit of background. As you see, likely written in your Bibles, Psalm 130 is a psalm of ascent. Jimmy touched on this last week. And the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134, and they're sung by Jews as they were uh, used to be sung by Jews as they travelled up to Jerusalem for the three main feasts. During the journey, there, were, there was a general heading up towards Jerusalem, hence the name. Um, and it's been traditionally considered a Psalm of repentance. Psalm 130 is broken nicely into three parts. Um, and so week two of eldership training was that all sermons have to have three parts. Um, and so this works out quite nicely. Um, but this psalm does have three distinct sections. So firstly, there is a cry for mercy. Secondly, a forgiveness by an awe-inspiring God. And lastly, there's hope in God's faithful love. And so we'll go through each of those. So firstly, a cry for mercy. The psalm begins with, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Hear my voice and let your ears be attentive. We see immediately what is so beautiful about the psalms. There is so much in this verse alone that is expressed through poetry and imagery. The psalmist is coming from a deep and dark place. Some translations will use the word pit uh, instead of depths. We can imagine the imagery of being stuck underwater, held down in the dark, unable to surface, crushed by the weight of whatever is holding us down, utterly panicked. When we find ourselves in this situation, it can be so tempting to think, okay, I need to get out. I need to climb out of the pit, to swim to shore, to make my way out of that dark valley. This can so often be our impulse. Our instinct is to try and escape in our own strength, and to make up maybe for what we've done. However, when we are in the depths of despair and feeling the weight of our guilt, it is telling us something is wrong that needs to be atoned for and not just escaped from. It is a good and right thing for us to resist and fight and struggle against our sin, but what we really need is not some cheap imitation and a fix, but a mighty God who can make things right. How guilty are we of this at times, looking for a cheap fix? I know I definitely can be. So we see here the right response. When we are in despair, we are to cry out to God. There is no other appropriate response, and this is what the psalmist does here. We need to cry to God as we are not able to save ourselves. We may tend to think that we can save ourselves, but we can't. We cannot save ourselves from despair. Only God can. We cannot save ourselves from our sin. Only God can. We can push it down, stop thinking about it, resist the thoughts and feelings, but we cannot fix it. The psalmist isn't therefore coming with a polite five reasons to God about why he should help him. And he's not trying to help himself, but he is crying out to God, knowing that God is the way, the only way to safety and salvation. God is a good father, a loving father, who is attentive to our cry for help. This should be our impulse when we feel in the depths of our life. We should cry out to God. So initially it isn't clear uh, what the psalmist is crying out for help from. Um, Is it physical rescue, um, like we see so often in the psalms, or is it inward turmoil and despair? Well, I believe that the latter part of verse 2 begins to give us a better idea of what's going on. 
The cry from the psalmist in verse 2 is a cry to the Lord for mercy. You may cry for help, healing, or safety from God if you're in physical need, but you don't cry for mercy. To show mercy is to show compassion, leniency towards someone of whom you have power to over to punish or harm. You only cry for mercy if someone has power over you. You cry for mercy when you are helpless and you wish for them to show restraint, compassion, or in the case of God, forgiveness. The psalmist cries for mercy. Uh, the psalmist cry for mercy shows three things. Firstly, it shows his absolute inability to save himself. Secondly, it shows that God is in control. And thirdly, it shows that God is a good father who will show mercy to us, to those who call on him. We do have a good, merciful father, and we have a God who has shown us mercy. God is well within his right to enact justice on us for our sin and rebellion against him, and yet he chose to show us mercy. He chose to forgive rather than punish by punishing Jesus on the cross. We can now cry out to God for mercy knowing that he has and will be merciful to us just like the psalmist. Secondly, forgiveness by an awe-inspiring God. I believe verse 3 and 4 clearly, uh, show clearly what the psalmist's issue is in Psalm 130. If you could mark iniquities, who could stand? He states. The psalmist has sinned. He has committed iniquities. It's not that his physical life is at risk, but that his soul is feeling the crushing weight of despair, drowning and the hopelessness of his sin. He is acutely aware of his sin, and he realizes that if God was to count all of his wrongs, there is no way that he could stand before a holy God. The rhetorical question, therefore, has a very clear answer. No one would be able to stand before a holy God, and that is our position too. He and we are alike. If God was to hold us accountable for our sins, we would be unable to stand before God. We have all fallen short of his glory. We cannot stand before God, and he is justified, uh, and be just, we cannot stand before God and be justified in our own merits. We just can't. And this is why we need the gospel. Our sin created an impossible rift between us and God that we could never cross. Tim Keller puts it like this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in our lives than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We only can truly begin to grasp just how much God loves us when we first understand how much of a sinner we are and what it took to save us. We are like this psalmist. However, here the next comes the most wonderful promise in verse 4. And it starts with but. But with you there is forgiveness. What a beautiful word. We see this so often in scripture, this but. Such a small world, word, and yet the significance cannot be overstated. If God was to count, out, count our iniquities, we would be forever in our sin. We would be separate from God and unable to have union with him. But the psalmist makes it clear that th with this transition, why he is crying out to God. Because he knows that God is a forgiving God. In him there is forgiveness. This is why the psalmist is able to stand. There is a way out of the pit, out of his despair, 
the Lord is merciful and forgiving, and in him there is forgiveness. But for the grace of God, we are saved. So now the psalmist wasn't as blessed as we are um, and get to see all that we get to see and how God was able to forgive us. But what I think is important just to mention was something that Jimmy pointed out to me. It is so easy for non-Christians and sometimes Christians to think that the God of the Old Testament was an angry, judging God and that the Jesus of the New Testament is somehow different and full of love and mercy. Simply not true. There has been and always will be only one God in three persons in the beautiful truth of the Trinity. We see the same God all through Scripture, and we see God's forgiveness all through the Old Testament, and here is a great example of it. So that you may be feared. Curious line. God's just stated, uh, the psalmist has just stated that in God there is forgiveness. This line makes you stop, right? Or at least I did. Why are we to fear a God if he is a God of forgiveness? Wouldn't the opposite be true? We've just seen the psalmist cry for mercy and trust in God's forgiveness, and we will see in verse 6 that he longs and waits for the Lord like a watchman for morning. So why does he fear God? Why would we fear something that is actually able to take away our sin? The confusion comes almost entirely through our translation and understanding of the word fear. The Hebrew word translated fear is not indicating that we should be afraid of God, but rather overwhelmed by God. Tim Keller once again sums it up wonderfully. So it means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. As we come to further understand and gaze upon the almost unbelievable mercy and grace that God has shown us, we will see him more as he really is which is unimaginably glorious, merciful, beautiful, wonderful. We will fear him for his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness, not because of his wrath. We will be overwhelmed by it, and in him we will bow before him as Lord, not as cowering, but in reverence. So thirdly, hope in God's faithful love. So far, we have seen why the psalmist is crying out in despair, and then the wonderful truth that God is a merciful and forgiving God. And then now lastly, we get to see the hope we have in God because of his love for us. It is because of the forgiveness of God that the psalmist can trust in him. It is also because of God's word that the psalmist can have hope in God. So this brings about praise, and as we read God's word, we'll see all that he has done for us, it can also bring us deep hope. So verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Verse 5, the psalmist goes on to say that he is going to wait on the Lord. He isn't waiting for his circumstances, his feelings, 
to change, nor his ability to get himself out and get himself up and going again. It is the Lord he is waiting on, and he is going to wait on the Lord with eager, assured expectation. More than a watchman for morning. We see how his soul is going to wait on the Lord. He isn't waiting as a passive individual, doing absolutely nothing with no anticipation. He is waiting on the Lord like a watchman for the morning. He is alert. He is active. He is certain that the Lord is going to come to his rescue and save him from his iniquities. A watchman can't be certain of many things. There may be an attack, maybe a shooting star, maybe a rebellion, or more likely absolutely nothing. However, there is one thing that he can be certain of, and that is that morning will come. We should wait on the Lord with the same certainty. The Lord will come. He will hear and answer our prayers. He has brought forgiveness and mercy. Of this we can be sure. How often can we wait on the Lord in a passive and unexpecting way? We are to wait rather in an eager, assured expectation. Verse 7 then goes on to say, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The last part of the passage is the response to the truth that the psalmist has already mentioned. He knows God to be attentive, merciful, forgiving, and that he can wait and trust on the Lord for his deliverance. So now he turns to praising him because of the hope that he has in the Lord. We see an interesting thing here too, in that he doesn't just praise God, but that he invites those around him to praise God as well. He is overflowing with praise and draws others into praising, into the praising of God. He calls on Israel to join him in putting hope and trust in God because of his steadfast love. The undercurrent of what God does with regards to his forgiveness and of his mercy is his love. He loves us so dearly that it is the reason God is merciful and forgiving to us. The deep love that God has for us allows us to put our hope in him. The hope that is reflected here is not the flippant hope that it may be sunny tomorrow, but rather a certain hope and a longing like the watchman for the morning, knowing that God will hear and answer our prayers and forgive us from all of our sin. It is not just because God loves, but because his love is steadfast. The psalmist appears to be reflecting back on the very thing that God declared about himself when Moses was on Mount Sinai and God passed before him. Uh, Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The very thing that God declares about himself as he reveals himself is that he is abounding in steadfast love for us. Not only this, but he tells us that he is a God who is a God who forgives iniquity. The very thing the psalmist is asking God to do. The psalmist, and so should we, can take great comfort in knowing that God has forgiven us. 
It is his very nature. It is what he has declared that he would do and what he has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, and lastly, he is a God of plentiful redemption. The psalmist is so confident in God's forgiveness that he is now preaching it to those around him. O Israel, the psalmist writes, his praising and worship of God now becomes a communal praise. So I'll finish in much the same way. God is a God of plentiful redemption. Not just redemption, meaning the saving of sin, but plentiful redemption. Our God is a God of overflowing, saving grace, mercy and forgiveness for those who trust in the finished work of Christ. We have a God that is unlike any other God. He doesn't come to us and tell us to get everything sorted, to get ourselves cleaned up, to do better. Nor does he require anything from us other than to put our trust in the finished work of Christ. God calls us to come to him broken, weary, not trusting in ourselves but trusting in him. Not trying to get out of our depths of despair or trying to clean ourselves up but crying out to him for mercy and forgiveness because he will provide it. When we find ourselves in the depths with no other way out, go to him. When we sin, run to him. Lay your iniquities at the foot of the cross, knowing they've already been dealt with by the blood of Christ. There is plentiful redemption from a God who has steadfast love for us, and he will save us from all of our sin. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.